and good food, if you bring any. <laughs> and then that day, there's a special Christmas program, December 8th, in the worship services, both hours, multi-generational program that I think you will enjoy. So we thought that would be a good day for our class to get together and have our party. And as Carrie said, the other classes are doing exactly the same thing. We will do ours here during this hour, and they will do theirs in their respective hours as well. So that's December 8th, and we'll remind you about it some more. Does anyone here own a white uh, Nissan Sentra? Um, I have the license plate if need be. Um, It has a flat tire on it, and you may want to attend to it even now. This would be your excused legitimate way to bail out of the class. because there are people <laughs> um, there are people who could help you with it now, but maybe not later so if if that applies to you, you may want to pay attention to it it 's parked right outside this door, and it 's the rear passengers i think rear passenger side tire i'm i 'm not sure about that, but it 's flat very much so on on the bottom in particular. <laughs> The rest is fine. (laughs) So, folks, we're in Hebrews. (laughs) We're in Hebrews, as you know. Whoever the writer is, who we don't know, is making a point which we do know, and that is that Jesus is better. Better than what, you might say? Everybody (laughs) and everything. He started us out by persuading us Jesus is better than the prophets, Why would he have to do that? Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, these are people worthy of respect. Sure, but not of worship. And some of that was happening in the day. So the writer is persuading the readers that Jesus is better than the prophets. Secondly, he's better than the angels. Angels are magnificent, real, supernatural beings. They're ministering agents. They serve at the behest of Almighty God, and they serve us. They're sent out for the sake of the elect, the scriptures say. So they're marvelous. You should marvel when you think about the angels, but not worship the angels. Some of that was happening as well. So the writer makes the case first that Jesus is better than the prophets. Second, he's even better than the angels. And now in Hebrews chapter 3, you'll see more of this particular theme, Jesus is better. Now, the Hebrews of the day, who are the primary recipients of this letter, named Hebrews, the Hebrews of the day, and even today, held a particular one of their own in very high esteem, and for good reason. Would you like to venture a guess as to who it is? It's Moses. Whoever said that is correct. (laughs) Hey, Ryan, way to go, buddy. It's Moses. Oh, you cheated. Oh, man. It's an open book test, so it's okay. (laughs) Now, tell me a little about Moses. What do you know about him that would make him worthy of respect? What what do you think, Ryan? No written things that he's done? Oh, sin. I'm sorry, brother. So he was a pretty good guy, a, a, a wonderful, holy character. Absolutely. 
what else do you know about Moses? What did he do? That's what he didn't do. What did he do? Yes. He led the people out through the wilderness wanderings 40 years. He was advanced in age at the time himself. So he's the deliverer of Israel. Uh, undoubtedly, for that reason, he, they would respect him. Anything else, Bill? Uh, and Bill is correct. He's known as the lawgiver. Remember when God called him up to Mount Sinai? Moses came down, not empty-handed. Oh, no, on the contrary. He came down with the Ten Commandments and much more as well. And so he's referred to as the lawgiver. So for good reason, the ancient Israelites respected him, but in some cases a little too much. So now the writer of Hebrews is saying, oh, no, Jesus, as good as Moses is, Jesus is far better even than Moses. And here's how he builds his case, beginning now in verse 1 of chapter 3, Hebrews. Therefore... Holy brethren, can we pause there just for a second and chew on those words, holy brethren? By extension, it applies to you. The original recipients of this are Hebrew believers, but it applies to you as modern-day believers. This is who you and I are, holy brethren. Now, the term brethren is a family term. It's wonderful. It means we have the same father. The God who we used to be in an adversarial relationship with has now embraced us as sons and daughters, which, which makes us brothers and, and sisters. And uh, we're not just related in this new family uh, in an ordinary sense. We're referred to as holy brethren. That doesn't mean we're sinlessly perfect. We still struggle with sin in thought, word, and deed. But the word holy here. And in most cases means separated, set apart. When God the Father redeemed us so as to adopt us into his family, he meant to set us apart, to, to make us distinct from the surrounding culture. Not that we would ever think we're better, but surely he bequeathed to us a far better way. Jesus is the way. And so God has wanted us to be wholly separated from the surrounding culture, I would say the church has largely failed. I don't mean this one in particular, but including this one. Historically, we've largely failed. I'll tell you why. In our quest to be relevant, we've succeeded. And we're so relevant, so connected to the surrounding culture, in their eyes, we're indistinguishable. We just don't look holy. Again, I didn't say weird and surely not... Um, obnoxious about the faith, but different. But we engage in the same things largely that the world does out there, and therefore they find us to be indistinguishable. I wonder if in these challenging days we all face as Christians around the world, maybe we'll dig in a little more and say, no, the goal is not to fit in. The goal is to be salt and light. Salt is a preservative of righteousness, and light illuminates the darkness. That's our goal. It's not to fit in. And so um, this defines who we are, holy brethren. What's more, it says, partakers of a heavenly calling. This is really good when we feel that our lives are cheapened by the realities of the day in which we live. No, folks, we're partakers of a heavenly calling. We're on earth just for a little while longer. 
but we're partakers of a heavenly calling. It emanates from heaven and is to impact us here on earth. So as we go about our business as citizens of this land, we are to remember, oh, no, our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. We're really passing through. Therefore, we ought not invest unduly here as if we're going to be here forever. No, it is true. I'm no time setter, but it is true that the earth is passing away and will be replaced by an entirely new reality, which is far better and so we're all, not by vir- inherent virtue, but by God's grace, partakers of a heavenly calling. Our purpose here is to know God and to make him known. That's it. It's not to get ahead. It's not to be successful. It's not to make a lot of money. None of these things are wrong. I didn't say that. But that's not what our number one purpose is. No, no. We're partakers of a heavenly calling, which is to know Christ and to make him known. Really, those are the only reasons we're still left here until the Lord returns. And then the writer offers these two words, consider Jesus. Uh, That's therapy, folks, (laughs) because our minds are prone to lend themselves to the consideration of all things but Jesus. We have to consider politics and impeachment and taxation and all that's going on. We have to consider shootings in California, recent days at a school, and we have to consider the realities of life, which is increasingly harsh for many. However, what we really are called to do as holy brethren, as partakers of a heavenly calling, is to set our mind on Jesus. And what happens when you consider Jesus? You remember, in spite of what's going on, you remember he's powerful, he's sovereign, he's good, he is aware, he is holy, he is in control. One of my favorite songs, I told my wife, if I die before her, please have someone sing it at the funeral. It doesn't even have to be done well. I just like the song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Consider Jesus. And you and I are prone to be distracted from Jesus because of the throes of life. At the very time when we ought to be considering Jesus, that means with deliberation, focus our thoughts on him. Our thoughts are distracted by things. So this is a good word for the folks then and for us today. And as you're considering Jesus, the writer helps us to have some stuff to feed on. He refers to Jesus, interestingly here, as the apostle and high priest of our confession. Well, I never thought of Jesus as an apostle. Well, remember, the word apostle was in general Greek usage. Uh, Apostolos, an apostle, means a sent forth one, someone sent on a mission. Well, Jesus, in that sense, was surely an apostle, far greater than the apostles we typically think of as apostles, like Paul and Peter. But Jesus is far better, but still he was sent forth on a mission by the Father, and the mission is to represent the Father to us. 
if he didn't do that, we would be left with guesswork about who God is. We haven't seen him, you see. And so God uh, sent his son the perfect representation of the father. When you want to see God, consider Jesus. Look to Jesus. And so he's an apostle in the, in the sense that he's here. He came to represent the father to us. And he's a high priest in that his uh, uh, chosen um, uh, purpose also was to represent us to God. Think about this. What is Jesus doing now? Among the many things he's doing, one is to sit at the right hand of the throne of the Father and intercede for us. That means he stands between us and the Father and pleads our case and prays for us. Think about it right now. So he's an apostle in that he represents God to us. He's our high priest in that he represents us to God. So you see, the writer is already building this case for the greatness of Jesus. He's better than everybody else. Nobody could do these things. And furthermore, he says, verse 2, he was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. So what Jesus and Moses have in common is this wonderful characteristic. They were faithful to do what God would have them do. In this sense, they're the same. Ah, but don't stop there. Consider Jesus who, verse 3, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. And here's just a metaphor we could all understand. It's not deep theology. The house is wonderful, but the builder of the house <laughs> is worthy of more attention than the house. And Jesus is the builder of the house. Four, verse 4, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. In his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful, not as a servant, as a son, not in his house, over his house, whose house we are. Can you see the point the writer is making? Jesus is far greater. Moses was faithful as a servant in his house. Jesus is faithful as a son over his house. And who's that? Now the metaphor ends and we see who is literally in view there. Us, <laughs> whose house we are. And then you see this uh, phrase, Christ was faithful over, uh, as a son over his house, whose house we are. And then you see the word if, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end, if. Now, based on the one word if, uh, some have seen that there's a condition to be met in order to uh, perpetuate one's salvation. If is a condition. If you don't meet the condition of maintaining your confidence and boast of your hope in the Lord, then you can forfeit your salvation, some would say. And I think there's room for a discussion about that particular issue. We call it eternal security. I don't hold to it uh, because I don't think the scriptures um, support it as much as it does the position I take. You're free to differ, by the way. It's a free country. Um, I think when it says if, 
we do these things. It's not talking about a condition to be met in order to remain secure in Christ. It's talking about the evidence of one's salvation. Not a condition to be saved, the evidence of salvation. If it's a condition, then the burden of responsibility is on you, the one who's professed faith in Christ, to hang on. Oh, no, but as I read Scripture, he's the one who's enveloped up the, us in his hands. I'm not able to hang on to God. My grip can be weakened, but I'm in his strong grasp, and he will never lose any who are his own. So that's why I see this, if not to lead to a condition to be met in order to retain salvation as much as it's an evidence of salvation. What does that mean? The mere profession of faith in Christ doesn't save someone. No, the evidence of it is that the one who accepts Christ today continues on with him until the time of his return. Now, that's how I see it, but really wonderful, fine Christians whom I know of see it differently. I'm just going to say, you decide. This is an area where we well-intentioned Christians differ. I just told you the truth. But you're, in, <laughs> but you're entitled <laughs> to see it differently. Now what happens in verse 7 for the next... I, I'm sorry, Bill. Oh. Yes. Man, am I glad you said... I was a little reluctant to call on you because I didn't know what I was going to get. But, Bill, I'm so glad I called on you. The sense of that if is actually since. That is correct. Absolutely. Again, not if in the sense of condition, but as an evidence of salvation. Good. That's really a good point. Now, what happens in verse 7 on is that the writer of Hebrews is speaking the language of the Hebrews and making his point by referencing the Hebrew scriptures. We call it the Old Testament. Jews refer to the Old Testament as the Hebrew Scriptures. So the writer to the Hebrews is speaking the languages of, language of Hebrews, so he's going to quote, uh, oh, about seven times from Psalm 95 to make his case. And so here it goes, verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, by the way, uh, the first time someone said that phrase, it was David who wrote Psalm 95. But here we're reading, just as the Holy Spirit says. You know what you're getting as a sidelight? You're getting in a glimpse into how we got our, our scriptures. <laughs> God used a human vessel, David, to write some 90, Psalm 95, but it was really the Holy Spirit speaking through David. That's what we call biblical inspiration. We say the scriptures were inspired by God or God breathed. It was the spirit of God who moved in the lives of the men and women of God who wrote scripture to give us scripture. So really the divine author of scripture is the spirit of God. The human author in this case is a guy named David who wrote Psalm 95. And it goes on, don't harden your hearts, verse 8 is when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation. I said they always go astray in their heart. They didn't know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's all from the Old Testament scriptures. 
And the uh, writer of Hebrews is saying to the Hebrews of the day, your ancestors did poorly. Don't do the same. Your ancestors were subject to unbelief. Look what it says, verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. He's saying uh, your ancestors knew something about God, but acted in out in unbelief and therefore failed to enter into promised rest. Don't be like them. I think the writer is implying, be sure you're in Christ. And being a member of this church is not the assurance he's talking about. Anyone could join a church, sing in a choir, and even make offerings. No, no, no. He's saying the prior generation knew lots about God, but they were characterized by an unbelieving heart. By the way, that's the most serious sin. You might say murder or child abuse or some kind of sexual perversion. These are the most serious sins. No, the most serious is an unbelieving heart. None of those others will keep one out of heaven. Only this one will. An unbelieving heart. An unbeliever says, I will not accept. I do not trust in. I'm not leaning on. I don't believe in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ for all of my other sins. So this is a very, very important one to make sure you've dealt with rightly. If you were asked the question, do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? If you were to say, I don't know or I'm not sure, it would be worth you having a conversation with one of us, not to shame you in any way, just to go on this journey with you. Because the question could be answered, yes, I do know Jesus Christ. That's a very, very important uh, certainty to arrive at. If you're uncertain, um, we'd like to help you resolve that uncertainty. Uh, Call us because we wouldn't want you to go the way of some of these ancient uh, Hebrews who because of an unbelieving heart fell away. We don't want that to, to be the case with you. Now, if disregarding the words of Moses, as that ancient generation did, came with a consequence, can you see how much more disregarding the words of Jesus can come with a consequence? That's what's going on here. That's what the writer is doing. If disregarding the words of Moses could keep someone from rest, how much more disregarding the words of Jesus? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. He said, no one can come to the Father but by me. Now, if you disregard those words, because Jesus is far better, more authoritative than Moses, can you see how serious a matter that is? Therefore, make sure you're sure about your status with Jesus Christ. Make sure you're sure. And if you need help, private help, we would be pleased to meet with you. Now, uh, one would say, but wait a second, I'm a Christian. I believe I'm a Christian, but there are times when I have bouts of unbelief. Understand that. Uh, 
But that's different than the unbelief spoken of here. Uh, I'll tell you what I mean. Sometimes our unbelief is really the inability to grasp fully the things of God, but not the unwillingness to do so. We are in process. It's possible for a Christian to have aspects of unbelief in his or her heart, but it's not possible for a Christian to have an unbelieving heart. Can you see the difference? A Christian with aspects of unbelief is one who sins. Look, we we do from time to time. You look temptation in the face, and at that moment, you don't believe God for his holiness, for his lordship, for his wisdom, and you give in to the sin. At that time, though you may be fully saved, you acted out of unbelief, and you sin. But that doesn't mean, though there's unbelief in your heart, you have an unbelieving heart, because what do you do thereafter when God's spirit convicts you of sin? You say, oh, God. What have I done? I have sinned against you. Thank you for forgiving me. Please strengthen me so that I don't do it again. Can you see the difference? An unbelieving uh, heart is one characterized not by bouts of unbelief, but by an unwillingness to yield to the truth about Christ. Now, because this is a serious matter, and because even those here who are believers can struggle with doubt and unbelief, can waver from the faith from time to time. Therefore, the writer now gets intensely practical and in verse 12 tells us about something we can do to help each other. Here's what it says. But encourage one another day after day. That's what it says. And let's chew on that a little bit. Um. The word encourage can be translated exhort. It's a compound word in the Greek. Listen to this. It's the word parakaleo. I'm not trying to make this a Greek class, but I think you'll like this. Para is the word from which we get the word parallel. So two parallel lines, they run side by side. Para is something that runs alongside something else. Kaleo simply means to call to. You know what we're told to do? Come to church, be known, and know others so that others can fulfill their responsibility of walking right alongside you and calling out to you, not as a critic, but as a cheerleader. Keep going. This is a huge burden for you, but please keep your eye on Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Consider Jesus. You're a partaker of a heavenly calling. Don't dismiss him at a time when you need him most. That's what our job is, to come alongside one another as cheerleaders in the faith. Now, what this implies is that you have to come to church. (laughs) And this has given me another reason to do so, because there are times when even as one of the staff members here in this church, I don't want to come here. That's just, I mean, why fake it? I don't, for a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's cold outside. I just don't want to get out of bed. Sometimes there's just people here I don't like. <laughs> what could I tell you? So I need a reason to come. I, this one is a good reason. It's not possible to engage in this ministry of coming alongside and have another come alongside me and encourage me in the faith. 
can't happen in isolation from one another. This requires face-to-face relationship. Now, this is a tough one because a survey just revealed 78% of the general population agree with the phrase, you do not have to go to church to be a good Christian. And here's real scary, 70% of churchgoers, 70% also agree with that statement. You do not have to be a good you do not have to go to church to be a good Christian. Now, I know you don't have to. The church doesn't save. I, I understand that. But you cannot, you cannot be a good Christian in isolation from others. You can't do verse 12 in, uh, in front of your computer. Now, you can go to church, you know, Internet church that they have today, but then you'll never be able to deliver nor receive the ministry of verse 12. There's no face-to-face. There's nobody on that screen who knows you. They don't know what you're going through. They can't come over to you and say, how did your visit at the doctor go last week? I've been praying for you. You can't get that by looking at a computer screen. You can get it by sharing your burdens here, having faithful members pray for you and encourage you when you need it most when maybe you didn't hear a good thing from the doctor and maybe you're a little angry at God and wondering what he's up to, I don't know. And the drift of a subtle kind begins. Someone comes right alongside. They're walking you through that, through life, and they're, and they're cheering you on. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Consider Jesus. Don't take your eyes off him. You see, that ministry can't take place except in a local church, face-to-face relationship. I like this word parakaleo because it's the very word applied, think about this, to the Holy Spirit himself. Have you ever heard of the term the paraclete? That's the term by which the Holy Spirit himself is referred to in the New Testament. He's the ultimate cheerleader. When the Lord Jesus was resurrected and ascended. Remember when he said, it's good for me that I go because I'm going to send you another helper too. We have one in heaven, the Lord Jesus, and one right here, the very Holy Spirit of God. What's the Holy Spirit of God doing? Come on, Stuart, don't give in to that. That's not good for you. That displeases your father. Father knows best. What happened the last time you gave in to it? What'd you get? How did it meet your, you got guilt and shame. Don't do it, Stuart. Stuart, you're discouraged now. That's understandable. Circumstances are discouraging. But has our father changed? No, he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Stuart, you're taking your eyes off him. Put your eyes on him. Look full in his wonderful face. And all these things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Mm. And God is saying to us, I want y'all to perform the same ministry the Holy Spirit is performing in you. Don't leave it to the ministers. Everyone here is a minister. Everyone, do this. Go to church. Develop relationships. Share what's going on in your life to the extent you're comfortable. It doesn't have to be with everyone, but it ought to be with some so that they can encourage you on, pray for you. When I came to church today, I was in the parking lot. And someone driving one of the carts came right over to me and said something to me of the most encouraging kind. Wow. And then I came in and 
the last hour before the class officially started, a couple of us were in the back just talking. And one man was sharing just how thankful he is for the blessings God had bestowed upon him. Another man quoted this, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my... This is before the formal part of the class started. So encouraging in the parking lot and here to hear these things. Don't you see? That's the ministry of encouragement and exhortation that kind of keeps you going. This is long before the, any, any part of the formal class. Good preaching and teaching here. Wonderful worship. But, but, but the interaction that takes place before and after those things is just as vital as important and could in some cases be the most blessed part of your church day. What someone has said to you a word, a look, or a touch, a hug, something. I know what you're going through. How? Because you've shared it, and I'm praying for you regularly. What a blessing. You, and now you can't hear things like that in any other organization on earth, only the church. Come to church. Our church numbers are in decline. Hmm. Interesting. So I've been studying things, and I'm finding out decline seems to be happening across the country. Why is that? There's a lot of reasons, I understand. One reason is a lot of people are not finding it necessary to go to church anymore when you can tune into the world's greatest speakers online, and then you don't have to put up with other church members you don't like very much. You don't have to get out of bed and put on your makeup. And by the way, ladies, thank you for doing so. <laughs> Just is so much better before lunch to, for you to be looking as beautiful as you, you are. So thank you for doing that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's just, it's just a hard thing. That, so you stay home and tune on to the world's greatest. And, and then there's no need for any interaction or working through things and, even saying forgiveness to someone, you know, and who, who may have offended, there's no, there's no need for any of that. It's so, so much easier and simpler. And so uh, today, the, a, a committed church member uh, considers himself or herself committed if they go to church two times a month. That's what the studies indicate, two times a month. So huh, verse 12 tells me, no, that's not right that we need regular encouragement and we need to regularly encourage those around us. So that means interaction of a more regular uh, kind. Essentially, the writer is saying, here's what every Christian to do is to do. Get alongside of one another and encourage each other in the faith. That's part of our mission. Now, how often, how long do you have to do this? Well, as long as it is still called today. <laughs> Today is called today. You know what tomorrow is going to be called? Today. That's how often you do this. <laughs> For as long as it's still called today. Now, there will come a day when we won't think about today or tomorrow or yesterday because time will no longer bind us. We'll be in eternity. No past, present, or future. And then we won't quite need the same kind of ministry because the Lord Jesus will be the, all the encouragement we need face to face. Until then, as long as still called today, <laughs> keep doing this. Why? So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And that's the way it is. 
Sin does not come with a very uh, specific self-disclosure statement. You know how you go different places? You, you take a, they advertise medication on TV, and you get disclosure statements. Caution, this may cause, and then it's like 50,000 horrible things that are going to happen to you when you take that aspirin. So, <laughs> well, sin doesn't come with a disclosure statement. Sin tricks us. Sin says this will solve your problems. Sin says uh, whatever it is you're dealing with now can be remedied by this. It tricks us. And so we do this or that. And then sin laughs. Fooled you, fooled you. Sin deceives. In fact, many who sin have become adept at reframing it so that it's not sin, it's, you know, something else. It's a mistake, a wrong turn, or, or even the redefining of what's wrong to make it right and what's right to call it wrong. We're very, sin is very potentially deceitful. If you engage in a particular thing long enough, you can really justify it, and to you it no longer becomes sin. I guess I don't want to go out of my way to hurt anybody here, but living together is a thing. It's fascinating to me how many people in this church live together. They're not married. This church. Make you out to be the most horrible person in the world. I didn't say, and I know why you're doing it. You kind of love each other, and it's a cure for loneliness, and it's economically a good arrangement. See, you, you no longer think of it as sin anymore. <laughs> it's economically feasible, and you're not being promiscuous. You're just you know, pr- providing companionship, safety, and security. All that makes sense to me, but not to God, <laughs> who calls it. Sin. See how tricky sin is? You could, you could actually come here, sing in the choir, sing God's praises, open your Bible, except to the passages <laughs> that call what you're doing sin. I don't mean to hurt you. I just mean to illustrate what I'm talking about. And you know what you need in that And me too, in this situation. <laughs> I need the benefit of the exhortation of other believers lest I be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so if you engage in it long enough, you've just become hardened by its deceitfulness. You've relabeled it. It's just not sin to you anymore. But what if it's sin to God? Don't you want someone lovingly to tell you that? Lovingly, not harshly, not to condemn you, just to exhort, just to say, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look to him, do things his way, it's better. Isn't that the ministry you need and, and also need to give others? Well, I know, I know that's kind of stepping on toes. Some people call it meddling, but no, no. We are our brother and sister's keeper. Now, we've just underestimated what it means to be in the family of God. 
We think it's just another organization. No, we call holy brethren. We have the same father. We're supposed to do verse 12 to one another. Encourage one another day after day so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That, otherwise, you could just be part of any organization. But this is different. This organization is one in which we encourage each other not to be hardened in unbelief, in sin. Oh, no. But to stay open to Jesus, to live holy lives. Ministers need this ministry as, uh, as much as anybody does. Well, that's what it says. A little more motivation, 14. We've become partakers of Christ. <laughs> If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, assurance firm until the end. Well, there again, you see the if. Here, here, here <laughs> we differ. Well-intentioned people differ. Again, I don't see it to be a condition for salvation. I think it's an evidence of salvation. Meaning if someone is truly saved, they will endure until the end. But others, really good folks, say, nope, it means what it says. <laughs> Meaning if you don't meet this condition, then you can forfeit your salvation. I don't see that. Those are folks who put too much weight on the human side of salvation. I put all the weight on the divine side, meaning the saved one has done nothing to be saved. The saved one has done nothing to procure his or her salvation and therefore can do nothing to forfeit it. Salvation is from beginning to end provided by the Savior. And therefore, you cannot forfeit what he has done. That's why it says in the Bible, he who began, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's what it says. He, not we. Anyway, then the next verses go on to refer the present day reader at the time of Hebrews to their ancient forebearers who really messed up and in the wilderness. And as a result, uh, God swore, verse 18, they wouldn't enter his rest. And so verse 19, last verse, we see they weren't able, able, they weren't able to, to enter because of unbelief. There it is again, folks. The only sin that will keep someone from eternal rest is the sin of unbelief in Jesus the Savior who provided it for us. That's it. Sin is not the problem. We have a sin solution his name is jesus when we deny his role that's called unbelief and then that's what will keep us out of eternal rest if you're uncertain about where you stand don't do that to yourself come call one of us make an appointment let's pull off to the side privately have a conversation talk about your eternal situation lord jesus thank you for everything thank you for giving us one to each other Thank you for the wonderful, legitimate differences in the body of Christ. I think it enriches the experience we learn from one another. And thank you what we have in common. You as Savior and Lord. You being far better than anything. Our own thinking, our own traditions, any other personality. You, Lord Jesus. And we're so grateful that we could never forfeit you. You'll never leave us nor forsake us. Help us, even in this week, more than the last, to turn our eyes upon you, to consider Jesus even more than everything else. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you folks. Hope to see you next week.